welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we go to the front lines of the youth climate strike movement. There are hundreds of protests going on all around the world today as young people's school children from Australia to Iceland come together to protest about what they're calling the crisis of their lifetime. Climate change, of course, and what they see is politicians' inability or unwillingness to do anything about it. Now to the global protest that is underway right now. Students and workers all around the world are flooding the streets, demanding action on climate change. Maggie Rooley is at a demonstration in London with the latest. Michael, we're here with thousands of protesters right underneath Parliament. And what's so striking, besides just the sheer size of protesters here, are the age of people who are demonstrating. Almost all of them are students. This group behind me, just nine years old. We spoke to a group of 17-year-olds who said they're here today to fight for their future. Now, the goal of this strike, and really all these strikes around the world, is to send a clear message to world leaders ahead of the UN Climate Summit happening this week in New York. Climate change protests happening right now in Lower Manhattan. And this is video from Chapter 4 showing the massive crowd marching from Foley Square near the courthouses down to the Battery. Among the people flooding city streets were students who were allowed to skip class today to join this cause. I talked with Jerome Foster II, who at seven started watching documentaries about our planet, got activated, and started climate blogging, creating virtual reality platforms for social justice He's now 18 and has been climate striking for 81 weeks in front of the White House. He founded One Million of Us to get youth to vote this November. Jerome is one of 11 million people from over 140 countries that are climate striking and skipping school to tell us we need to act now. I start by asking Jerome where he is now. I'm based in New York City. Um, I just moved here for college, but I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. I'm going to college at Pace University in Columbia, taking class at Columbia, basically majoring in computer science and specializing in artificial intelligence. Some of my classes are distance learning. Others are like mixed where you can come in class and others are like you stay in your dorm. And there's like all physical classes, some of them. Most of my classes right now are digital. I only have one physical class right now. So tell me about um, growing up in D.C. and kind of what led you to get into the place where you founded the organization one million of us. Yeah, so when I grew up in Washington, D.C., like right around like places where there was like creeks and forests and there was like a huge place for me to explore in my neighborhood. So I kind of grew up getting in touch with nature. And after years of like understanding what nature was and how to really appreciate it, I started watching documentaries about astrophysics and learning about like what our world is about and like what are black holes, what are wormholes, all these cool like sciencey things. And after that, I started watching documentaries about my own planet. And how does our planet fit into like astrophysics and how does that fit into the rest of the world? Every time they talked about something that was beautiful, it's like, but humans are burning it down. And but humans are continuing to extract coal and, and oil and natural gas to power our Earth. And it's going to continue to see species go extinct. And like that was like kind of a wake up call for me, understanding that our Earth is actually has like trouble going on. But still being like six or seven years old, I was like, this isn't that big of an issue. Adults are going to fix this. Adults are definitely going to step up and take action. But <laughs> learning later on that, like, it didn't happen. That's that's not the story. 
as the naivety faded, it kind of grew into another understanding that like it's the corruption and it's the unwillingness to have moral clarity when we stand up to these corporations and that they don't have like the political leadership to actually say, we need to hold you accountable. And like, as I grew older, I was like, how can I get into like really getting their, getting their attention and actually taking action. But my friends kind of told me at the lunch table, they're like, Hey, you should start an Instagram page. I was like, okay, cool. So like for sixth, seventh and eighth grade, I posted like every single day about climate change and like posted facts and got like two likes. And I was like, I got two likes. I convinced two people that climate change was real because back then it was like global warming is like a hoax and everyone believed that. And like, that was the big struggle. And like today it's, it's not that same conversation. It's about like, how do we take action? But back then it was all about, is it real? And I did that for sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And in ninth grade, I kind of transitioned and to more technology and building virtual reality environments. So, I mean, when you say like it's been years, like it has been for you. Like if you started when you were seven, that's yeah, it's just, a lot it's more than half time. your life. Yeah, so like in ninth grade, I started a virtuality company called Tal VR. And basically it was out of the idea that like we can use virtuality not just to be a gaming place, but actually have it where civic engagement, actually building empathy. Only a few people will be able to see it because it's so expensive to create and it's so hard to distribute it out. So I kind of transitioned into um, into journalism. And it was because I started watching my documentaries again. <laughs> it was Leonardo DiCaprio's Before the Flood. And like in the last five minutes, he said, we need climate change is being covered as if it's a lie. We need young people. We need people to come out here and start talking about climate change in a new way. So I was like, I could do that. There's like, I'm going to start my own blog. So like literally two hours later, I emailed, I emailed my English teacher and I created a blog called The Climate Reporter. And I wrote over 165 articles over like eight months and just talked about climate change from a youth perspective. So I was like, we need to get young people in this movement because our future is directly at stake. People say they're children's children, but we're the children's children at this point. We've waited 50 years to take action. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, this is our future now. What are you feeling about just being at this point in history where other people you thought would take care of the climate problem, but they just, they haven't? I think it was a mix of emotions. It was anger. It was disappointment. It was also just urgency because it weren't solving the problem. It was just finding out the reason why. Why are they just unwilling to make small changes to things that could just absolutely transform society and make it better? A lot of people in the climate movement say they have climate anxiety because of the fact that there's existential threat of like, what is going to happen to our planet if we don't take action? And for me, I don't find that space productive. Um, I do get there sometimes. And I feel like a lot of activists that really have read a lot of the policy and know the, the timeline of the climate crisis, they really have that that anxiety. But for me, living in Washington, D.C. and seeing protests happen almost every single week or every single day almost I knew an exact way to really voice my emotions and my anger around the climate crisis to to start to start organizing marches and organizing protests. I wanted to become more of an activist because I saw that that could be a, a really great space to actually show directly the scale of, of the concern around the climate crisis. The environmental movement always had this amount of energy, but we just didn't have a place to show it. And the climate strikes movement really offered that opportunity for young people to really unite behind one movement and unite behind something that's international and nonpartisan that just shows that like if 11 million people from over 140 countries are climate striking and skipping school to say our future is in danger, that should really raise an alarm for adults to start taking action. And that's really why we started the climate strike movement and continue to do that. I saw the empathy as a great starting point, but at the end of the day, we have to start taking action.
And in terms of that action, Jerome, like how are you seeing, I know you, you started this organization, One Million of Us, and really the goal is to mobilize people to the election that's coming up. Um, often there's this frustration that there's all this energy and forward movement and passion with young climate activists, but they don't vote. So you just turned 18. Um, this will be your first election. Like, how are you viewing getting young people to vote? For me, viewing getting young people to vote is not like a revolutionary thing. I don't think it's it's crazy. A lot of things that I think getting right, people registered to vote is really transferring that same energy from the streets that we had of like marching and protesting and holding sit-ins. It's transferring that energy to voting. And we have like been stuck in this conversation around media and been stuck in the conversation around how do we stop the climate crisis? What steps do we need to take? And like, we're done having conversations. We're done continuing to explain the same steps that we need to take. Right now, we just need politicians that are bold enough to actually champion climate justice. And like, that's the next step of voting is that 22 million young people turn 18 this year and they're now eligible to vote. And if we amass even 1 million of those 22 million young people, we could drastically change our country to really start the decade of the Green New Deal mobilization and start taking progressive policies that are actually going to save our future. And Jerome, what is the cynicism? Like, I think we all feel it at a certain degree, but like the cynicism that stops that you need to overcome with those million people to get folks to vote. Was it just people like, it doesn't really matter who we vote for or the political system is broken or like what are the kind of obstacles you have to overcome to get folks to vote yeah i think that really it's the for young people it's the idea that our vote doesn't matter and also it's the idea that politicians don't really care about our issues and that they won't really talk about anything that's that's pertaining to us because like we don't vote so they don't care about the issues young people don't don't vote because politicians don't talk about the issues. We organize around climate justice, immigration reform, gender equality, racial equality, and gun violence prevention. And really what we're trying to do is really just organize people and use that same energy that we have. Like in marches, you have people from all over the political spectrum turning out to, to march. That's the same thing when it comes to, to voting. All we need to know is have the education around who we should vote for and then have the education around like how do we get to the polls how do we combat discrimination once we get to the polls and like what resources do we need to vote by mail because a lot of young people don't even know how to mail a ballot including myself like for a long time we didn't know how to mail a ballot and having that education around voting is like hugely impactful because like that can transform our country and like that was the impetus to starting one million of us um i interned for congressman john lewis last year in june of 2019 and really it was under, getting outside of the space of climate change and understanding that there's racial injustice, there's criminal justice reform, there's gun violence prevention, all these different movements fighting for the same justice. But people aren't actually using that energy to go out and, and affect change in a way that's impactful directly, which is voting. And people see movement building and voting as two different things. But the goal of One Million of Us is to create a coalition where we're coalescing these movements and then building a connection between voting and, and continuing to march and strike. Like when you interned with John Lewis, who recently passed away, like he was a, you know, a giant in the civil rights movement. And how do you think about climate justice as that intersection with civil rights? Civil rights are human rights and human rights are environmental rights. Like a lot of these movements are intersectional because 71% of coal-fired power plants are placed in black and brown communities. And that's due to decades of redlining in our communities that we're seeing the continual placement of 
of dangerous factories put in directly in our in our areas. And like we've seen that with Cancer Alley, and we've seen that with South Shore Chicago, and we've seen that with the Lower Ninth Ward, a lot of the resources that should go to environmental restoration and just should be equal to everyone, a lot of times they're allocated mainly to non-person of color um, communities. It's that conversation around the fact that a person doesn't live in a vacuum. Like the climate crisis doesn't live in a vacuum. And like, if we continue to have like the mindset that like feminism, I mean, um, sexism can't exist in the same space that racism does, then we don't understand that these movements are the same. Like black women are at the intersection of those movements. And the climate crisis really is an exacerbator of almost every single slow rolling crisis because we're continuing to really exploit communities that have already been at the margins already. And when we talk about it in an intersectional way, and see it as a systemic problem, then the only way to solve this is with systemic solutions that overhaul a lot of the things that have just been seen as a status quo and really talk about real solutions that solve it on a systemic and global level. So talking of one of those, Jerome, like right now we've got, you know, hurricanes battering Florida and the panhandle. We've got fires burning out of control on the West Coast. Like when you look at that news, those images from around the country and around the world, like what are you feeling? I'm feeling... First, I always feel sadness, and I feel like it's depressing at the same time because it's it's like if anything should mobilize us and actually get us to actually start taking action, it should be the fact that California's skies are orange and that their communities are being burned down. There's so many natural disasters that should just scare us like crazy and actually just scare us into taking action. But I think that what it does is it shows the fact that the climate crisis is, is here. We keep talking about the fact that it's going to happen in decades or in, in 2050, but it's happening right now. And like these are kind of like early signals. And they're saying that like this is what is to come. And a lot of the animals that, that make the soil rich are going extinct. And we're going to see more and more of our forests continue to die. And I think that that's really what continues to urge us when we see these horrific views of what's happening across America is to continue to organize and continue to put that up in, in elected officials' offices and saying, this is what is happening. This is what you've caused because you aren't brave enough to actually stand up to the companies and actually start saying, we need to have a carbon tax. We need to stop giving subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. And we need to ban fracking. And we need to start protecting our wildlife. And Jerome, what do you think it's going to take to get politicians that are brave enough to do all those things? I think it starts with voting. It absolutely starts with voting. And it starts with scaring elected officials and saying that you're you're elected to represent us because you're our elected representatives, but they aren't representing our issues anymore. And that if you aren't going to represent us, you aren't going to be voted into office. And like, really, that's the biggest scare you can send. And a lot of times we aren't even running to just push them to take climate action. We're, we're running to actually get new people in office because some people are just so far beyond and just become plots of land for corporate America that we need to actually elect new people in office and elect people that will stand up to these companies and will start taking action. So that's really what we're, we're doing over the next two to four years. We've been climate striking for 81 weeks in front in many, in many countries. Like for myself, I've been climate striking for 81 weeks in front of the white house. I know there's so many other young people that have been doing the same. And we've seen that politicians reaction are like, you can skip school, you can go on hunger strikes, you can organize millions of young people around the world, and we still won't take action. We'll just give you lip service, and you'll just be fine with that. And we're saying no. We understand that politicians only care about two things. They care about money, and they care about votes. Young people don't have a lot of money, but we have a lot of votes. We have a lot of people power, and that's what we're going to use to really 
change the political system. And that's the urgent action that's going to happen in, I say, in, in November 3rd. We've already seen historic levels of youth voter registration across America right now. We just need a chance for that voter registration into actual voting in November. A lot of people that I speak to just say they don't really know where to get good climate news. Like, how do you advise people to kind of start getting more accurate information? I would say definitely look at the climate reporter. But even beyond the climate reporter, there are actual scientific studies like the IPCC report of 20, 2016. Like, that could be a huge resource. And also reading the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is 14 pages. And if you just spend maybe like two days reading that, that could like change your understanding of what the climate crisis is and actually it's a really good overview of what's actually going on like it talks about the fact that we're in a six mass extinction and it talks about what the problem is and talks about what it takes to actually have a justified solution and really learning about the climate crisis is not going on social media it's like we you can follow climate organizations on social media but don't just listen to anybody you should listen to the facts because there's still so many climate deniers that are on that have been given a pedestal by mainstream media. So we have to listen to United Science. Most people don't have time or the patience to like read the International Panel on Climate Change or even like 14 pages you'd think of the Green New Deal. There's probably like an unfair view of every youth generation, you know, between my generation and yours, like, oh, Jerome, like young people aren't going to read that stuff. No, it's not that. The young people, if you look at it, Climate change is the number one issue we care about. Even though a lot of young people don't read about it, we have summaries that we post about. Like we'll say on social media, the five points of the Green New Deal they should read about. And we break it down into key sentences. And like, even if we don't read, it's the fact that we understand the climate crisis is real and understand the climate crisis is urgent. So when a bunch of our friends tell us, you should read this 14 pages, we're already reading like 30 pages for college. So it's like... It's not that much of a barrier. And I think that our generation kind of gets like bad rap on like being kind of lazy. But I think that like behind the scenes, we're organizers and that we're, we're people that are passionate and fired up about the fact that our future is uncertain. That's like the biggest wake up call anyone can get is that your future in the next 10 to 20 years, you aren't going to have clean air and clean water to live on the planet. Like that's crazy. So what what would you want our generation to do? Like you you're striking, you're doing all this, you're getting folks to vote, you're getting super educated. What can we do? Yeah, so adults can do a lot, and we need adults really to have like our back. And you guys have been a part of the system, so you guys know what it takes. So we guys want you to vote with us. We want you to to go out and strike with us. And really, we need you to call your member of Congress. If you organize with us, if you vote with us, that's incredibly important because young people are are really sacrificing our education. We're sacrificing our time. Like myself and like so many other young people, we work every single weekend to get this done. We work every single day. Like we were on a conference call for nine hours this week and my Zoom count was 40 hours over the last two weeks of conference calls, talking about climate change, talking about voting, trying to get young people engaged. And if we have like adult support that could really change like how we're able to continue to organize. Young people kind of outwork everyone else. And like, that's really been the effectiveness of the movement is that continual work ethic of like, 
it's not just a job for us. A lot of us didn't want to be activists, but we're dragged into it because that's our future. And then if we don't have clean air and clean water, how can we focus on anything else? And it's the passion that drives us. And we need adults to be passionate as well as if it was their future. Because if we care about your children, if you'll fight with us and you'll join us in this fight. And that's what we're asking adults to do is have the same fiery energy and put yourself in our shoes growing up and like the financial aid crisis, being born like a year or so around 9-11. And then as you grow older, find out about a looming climate crisis, like a ticking time bomb for our future is saying that if we don't take action now when we're in our teens, our adulthood will be crazy and it will be absolutely destroyed because of the fact that past generations weren't were actually able to save, safeguard our future and were so selfish in the fact that they only cared about themselves they didn't look out for us. So when you think about the actions that we need to take, how are you viewing the scale and size of change that we need? If we were able to actually implement a moderate carbon tax in the year 2000, we wouldn't have to be having a conversation about Green New Deal. We would be on track to 1.5 degrees of warming and we'll be able to restabilize our planet. But based on the models, that's not okay anymore. We can't change the light bulb and then expect for all the hurricanes to go back to normal. That's not what we need anymore. All the other options are exhausted at this point. Right now, in the next five years, we need to desubsidize fossil fuels. We need to safeguard um, a lot of our natural resources. We need to close up the Arctic Circle for drilling. We need to make sure that we have a ban on drilling in, in, in the Amazon rainforest in Borneo and actually transform our economic system to make sure that GDP includes natural resources. Small steps would have been great 20 years ago, but we didn't take those steps 20 years ago. So we have our only result to be on the same scale is to actually take bold actions and to really be within the 1.5 degree target because our earth has never seen two degrees of warming. And if we don't take action within the next 10 years, what what do we expect? Do we expect our plan to be the same? It won't be the same. So we have to take these bold actions and uh, carbon tax, if you would keep talking about it, it's it's a great idea, but it's not going to work in this time scale. So given that time scale and given we're talking a lot about voting, but you also have a lot of purchasing power. Young people like everyone else buy stuff. And it feels like greed is one of the main reasons that the planet is burning. Like, how do you think about that aspect of of your power? When we talk about like personal responsibility versus systemic responsibility will always result to the fact that if 2,000 people just stopped buying this product, that would work. And the only issue with that is that we can do that, but our government is the only way that it's going to stop because we can stop buying things. We can stop doing that for a week, but we can't do it in the long term. We can't expect tens of thousands of people to stop buying things for forever because that's just not systemic. What we need to do is just it's a lot easier for us to actually go out and just vote and just have community leaders become political champions for justice. And like people keep saying, like, you don't buy things, but like that's much harder to do than just actually going out and vote. And, and just registering to vote takes two minutes. Going out to vote, it may take a little bit longer, but if you vote by mail, that's also a great option too. And that in the long run, it's a lot easier to get people to do that. And we can do both. And there's organizations that are doing both. And we see that like, the easiest way right now, there's three pillars of power. There's people power, there's political power, and there's economic power. We have the power of the people already, but we're trying to get political power. And once you get political power, that would change our economic system. And it's much harder to change our economic system and then get the economic sphere to then go to government and say, oh, we, we need different regulations. Because 
our economic system has no moral or social indicators. It just has indicator of profit. But our government system is accountable to the people. So if we have people power, then we can make them accountable to us. What are the biggest or difficult conversations that you have with your parents about this? My parents are very understanding, and I talk to them a lot about this issue, so they understand the breadth and, and, and how big this, this crisis is, so they understand why I'm spending so much time on it. It's very hard for us to continue to do schoolwork and be up at 5 in the morning on a conference call, and then wake up at 8, then get to, ca- get to class, and then during our lunch break, we have another conference call, and then we go back to class, do homework, do another conference call, then organize a march on, on a Saturday, and then we do a sit-in at another um, representative's office on the next week. All these things add up and add the time, and like that's the whole issue of the fact that like it's crazy that we that when we organize, adults will walk up to us and say, "You guys give us so much hope," and it's like, no, we don't have any hope in this. What we need is action, and then once we take action, then we're gonna get hope. It's we don't want to be out here. We shouldn't be out here. You should be out here and and advocating for us. We get hope from organizing. We don't get hope from organizing. We get hope from the Voting Rights Act of 1964. And we, get, and we get hope from the Emancipation Proclamation. We get hope from actual elected officials standing up and actually advocating for the people and not just trying to have publicity stunts and continue to, to serve their own pride. We're here to actually have legislation that helps people. What would you say to those people who are like, eh, you know what, the whole system's just completely dysfunctional and corrupt and I don't want to take any part of it? I understand that point of view. If your vote didn't matter, why would someone be trying to silence it? If you you going out and marching didn't matter, why are people shooting you with rubber bullets? Why, why would that impact? Why, why, why are people trying to stop you if it has no power? So I think that if you are hesitant about going out to vote this November or are hesitant to register to vote, just understand that in Pennsylvania, one candidate won only by an average of two votes per precinct. So if you and two of your friends went out in 2016 and voted and you were eligible to vote at that time, you would have swayed the election in your local precinct. And if more young people did that, say your entire classroom of 30 students did that all across your state, you could have continued to sway that. And you have so much power because of the fact that other people that you know are still saying, oh, my vote doesn't matter. So, Jerome, how do you how do you convince people, whether they're young or they're old, that voting actually does make a difference. Our vote does matter because of the fact that if we win by X amount of people, there's no way that it can be fudged. There's no way that it can be messed with. And who do we want to have our future? Who do we want to actually see us? Like if we don't vote, if young people don't vote, say you don't vote in November, how do you ever expect a politician to actually care about the issues that you care about if you aren't supporting them? It's a two-way streak of support. They support you if you support them. That's how our government works. So you have to be involved. You have to be passionate about these issues because you can't say you're not political anymore because politics is not just politics anymore. Politics is our air. It's our water. It's the land that we stand on. It's if the community will still have access to fresh water if we just acted earlier. If we just have better political leadership in the 1970s, we wouldn't be talking about climate change right now because if we had elected officials that actually put put in place the clean air and clean energy provisions, we wouldn't have to talk about this. So if you vote and if you actually back politicians that will safeguard your future, then we'll continue to see them talk about these issues and continue to see them be fixed if we go out and vote. So your vote is powerful. Your vote is influential. Your vote in united ways, going out and registering your friend to vote. It takes less than a minute or two minutes to register to vote. And it takes so quickly to actually just go out to the polls or mail a ballot in. What could you do in two hours of watching a movie versus two minutes of registering to vote? 
And actually, your website, One Million of Us, which is one million of and then dot US, has a, a lot of information on on how people can vote and also kind of how they can join the movement itself. If you're a young person out there not understanding how your vote will impact, go to one million of that us and become one of the million. Become a mass movement of young people all across the country that are registering to vote and are forming a movement of young people that are going to be united in this crisis and advocate for united solutions and advocate for systemic solutions, whether that's racial inequality or gender inequality or LGBTQ rights or immigration justice. We're advocating for all these issues when we go out to vote. So join this movement of young people and continue to have elected officials actually champion these, these issues and start acting on behalf of the youth of America. A huge thank you to Jerome Foster II for talking with Podchipperth today. The anger and frustration that led Jerome and millions of youth across the globe to mobilize is symptomatic of the failure of leadership that has led us to the climate emergency we're in. The climate strike movement is often viewed through the lens of hope, but most of the kids in the street don't want to be there. They'd rather be in school. They'd rather we had just made the tough decisions 30 years ago. The journey that leaders like Jerome are taking the youth climate movement from the streets to the ballot box is critical. 22 million people turned 18 this year and are now eligible to vote. It's our job to do everything we can to support this inspiring climate strike movement and to realize it's still within our power to help Jerome's generation shake us from the grips of our own inertia and take the bold actions required to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. It's worth remembering that 18-year-olds are a hell of a lot wiser than we think. <laughs> <laughs>